you're listening to Culture Call, a transatlantic conversation from the Financial Times. I'm Griselda Murray-Brown in London. And I'm Lila Raptopoulos in New York. Coming up on today's episode... Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Comedy is so brilliant for lightening the mood that you pick your moments to relieve tension. So it's dog comedy now. It's dog comedy, yeah. Like, why? It's not just nature, it's not just nurture. It's a balance, it's having a little bit of each. Why, why is that? Some people just want to come out and they just want to laugh. They don't necessarily want a lecture on the clitoris. <laughs> we have to be careful with language because it creates the world. The problem is really the choice. I'm either reading a book or on my phone or by myself or I'm with friends. Why would I want to talk to you? Uh, but sometimes it's more ambiguous than that. I just think it's being very careful exactly what you're saying, how it can be construed and can you stand by it? Because it's not about not offending people. Because offence is actually sometimes very fun. Welcome to Culture Call. Today we're talking to the comedian Sarah Pascoe in London. But before we do any of that, just want to say a quick thank you again for your tweets and emails. Yeah, please keep them coming. As always, you can reach us on Twitter. We're at FT Culture Call. Or you can email us at culturecall at ft.com. We'd love to know what you're thinking about, which plays and films you've seen recently, and what books you're reading. Lila, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Grizz? Yeah, I'm fine, thank you. Uh, what have you been up to since we were last speaking? Um, so I saw a very buzzy Broadway play called Betrayal, which I've been wanting to talk to you about. It was a new interpretation by this director, Jamie Lloyd, of a classic Harold Pinter play. Um, and the draw was Tom Hiddleston, the movie star, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yep. who was wearing a very tight navy blue sweater. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, <laughs> honestly, I think that was what sold a lot of the tickets. But there were also, you know, two other actors on stage. He was joined by Zoe Ashton, who is uh, a great actress, and Charlie Cox. And it was the story of infidelity where a man has had a multi-year affair with his best friend's wife. And the play goes back in time and shows you how that betrayal unfolds. And it's a play from 1978. Uh, And did you like it? The acting was excellent. um, And the staging was very cool. I mean, all three of them were on stage at all times. And the point was it was sort of trying to remind the audience of how that third person in a love triangle is always present, which was really interesting. And it was very British, which I liked. I mean, everyone was swallowing their feelings in a very distinctly British way, um, which I, it made me laugh. Um, and it made actually the whole audience laugh. Yeah, I can imagine that being quite different seeing that in New York. So so this production was very recently at the Donmar Warehouse in London. And the sa- it's literally the same production that's transferred to Broadway. And it's different to be laughing at yourself and then to be laughing at these like weird, <laughs> repressed British people. Right. It was sort of like I saw Hamilton while I was in London. Mm. And that was a funny experience, too. Like the Brits really thought that the king was a delight. <laughs> Whereas the king is like this evil character in, in America. <laughs> um, but you sound a bit unsure about betrayal, though. What didn't you like about it? Well, I mean, I had not seen the play before, so I didn't know it coming in. But it felt outdated a little bit. Like, the characters all came off as pretty terrible people. (laughs) And Pinter didn't write in sort of the benefit of their backstories, right? Like, there wasn't a lot about their psychology, sort of why they are the way they are. And the wife's role felt really two-dimensional in a way. And the men's friendship felt a lot richer to me. So that felt in itself kind of old-fashioned. The woman felt more just like a seductress. And, and, you know, like, betrayal is complicated mm. and emotional. Uh, but, you know, but this play has gotten amazing reviews. 
And so I guess it's sort of like, okay, there's only so much I can critique the play. The play has been around for a long time. Yeah. But it did make me think that the problem is really the choice. Like, why Pinter? Like, why this play now? Why would we bring it back in 2019? I just didn't feel like it was pushing culture forward to explore three miserable rich people who are all, like, betraying each other in their own dark <laughs> and special ways <laughs> in a play from the 1970s. I, I, I don't know. I just felt like, why? Yeah, when you put it like that, <laughs> it's, not, it's not an appealing prospect. I just don't. It didn't make me think anything new. But why do you think these things get chosen when they do? Well, so my cynical answer is I think Pinter is a name that people recognise. His plays are good. It will draw crowds. Mm-hmm. Theatres programme this stuff. You know, that's why we see the same plays coming round and round, I think. And it, it, that doesn't mean they're not also good, mm-hmm. but it means something like this would be kind of a safe bet. And especially if you put Tom Hiddleston in it. You know, the right. combination of those two things, I feel like... It's a partly kind of business decision as well. Mm -hmm. You know, that these are kind of brand names, in a sense, these plays. Yeah. At the same time, I wouldn't be so cynical as to say there's no other reason. I mean, obviously, they they choose these plays because they're good plays and they've stood the test of time because they speak to people. And, you know, and I do think that they can resonate at kind of specific moments in time. Mm -hmm. Um, Having said that, I don't feel like I ever need to see Hamlet again. I think I've probably seen that (laughs) enough times now. Um, But it's funny because I was interviewing a playwright recently. She's called Lucy Preble. She's brilliant. She did Enron, amongst other things, which was a big hit here. And she was saying that she's always asked to adapt, like, Greek tragedies, for example. And she always says no because she's not interested in doing that. She wants to write new plays about now that kind of speak to now And she's saying, that's fine if that's what people want to do. But as a playwright, and particularly as a young playwright, you do have to think, what do I actually want to put out there? And if you just want to adapt Chekhov endlessly, that's fine. But um, it should be like, it should be a decision. And it shouldn't always just be guided by what sells tickets, basically. And actually, she has this play, which I went to see last night, called A Very Expensive Poison, which is about the murder of the ex-FSB agent Alexander Litvinenko in London, which was in 2006. Um, He was murdered with poison in a cup of tea. Hmm. And it was this um, kind of incredible story where he basically solved his own murder on his deathbed. Oh, my God. And they found out who, you know, the Russian um, assassins that did this. And this is a really ambitious, inventive new play. It's not kind of perfect, but it's so good because... It's really kind of pushing the bounds of what you can do with theatre. Right. And she's a really good example of why it's important to have new plays coming up. Yeah. And and not just to be relying on the classics, I think. Grizz, for today's episode, you interviewed Sarah Pascoe. Why did you want to talk to her? So she's a comedian who I really like. She's been on the circuit for just over a decade, maybe 12 or 13 years. And I love her comedy. It's it's a kind of mixture of being quite goofy, but also very sharp. Um, right. And quite sort of warm, but also candid and autobiographical. I think she walks that line really well. She was also doing like properly feminist comedy before everybody else jumped on the bandwagon. So um, cool. I like I like her for that. She's part of, I guess, a kind of loose wave of British female comedians. Although, you know, female comedian is an annoying label and she points that out herself. <laughs> um, but that wave includes people like Bridget Christie and Josie Long and people who I think within the last 10 years have really come to the fore. Yeah. How would you describe her style? 
Uh, she seems a little bumbling, but then she's making like a very clear, sharp point in ways that I really like. Yeah, exactly. And maybe it kind of seems even more bumbling to an American audience because she's British um, and we are quite bumbling. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I was going to say digressive, I think. It's not super slick and that's not the impression that she's trying to give. It's not like a tightly scripted line of just joke, joke, joke. But at the same time, I think there's a real point to her shows. There's there's kind of content in there and you come away really thinking about things, whether it's kind of evolutionary biology or the way that young women are portrayed in the media. Like she, she always has something that she's trying to say. Have you seen this advert? This is the worst ad I've ever seen. It's in a woman's magazine, but I can't remember which one, because they've all got different names, haven't they? Like, look, new, hello, okay, heat. But I just think that they should all change their name to women getting dressed. Because <laughs> that's all that was in it. <laughs> and we're an intelligent society. Everyone knows now that these magazines are just negative propaganda towards women, aren't they? Like, I read this thing from cover to cover, and every article, everything that it was saying could be condensed down into one short quiz, which is basically, ladies, what do you hate most about yourself? Is it A, your face, or is it B, your body? <laughs> Answers to the quiz. Mostly A's, buy expensive makeup to cover it up and expensive clothes to distract people. <laughs> Mostly B's, starve yourself and go to the gym. While you're there, look in one of those big mirrors. Are you sure you don't hate your face? So she wrote a few books, and usually books by comedians are memoirs or autobiographies that are also funny, but these take on very intense topics. Yeah, totally. So she's published two books, one a couple of years ago called Animal, The Autobiography of a Female Body, and her new one, which is just out, is called Sex, Power, Money, which is about um, what it sounds like it's about. Um, <laughs> I mean, th these books are like proper books. She hasn't just dashed them out. They're kind of really, really researched and really relatable and readable. Cool. I'm curious to hear how her writing the books has affected her stand-up. So let's get into it. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Hey, hello. Your comedy often describes these quite specific experiences and dynamics. How would you describe them in your own words? For ages, I didn't have a word. You know, if you meet people, especially if they're not very comedy literate, and I don't mean that in an insulting way, I mean they don't go to gigs, so they think that comedy is like um, Michael McIntyre mm -hmm. or a one-liner comedian like Jimmy Carr. So it's like telling jokes. Yes, telling jokes, which means that you have to describe yourself as like, oh, I don't do jokes, <laughs> but I am a comedian. <laughs> like, it's a riddle. And then I heard someone describing, or the, describing a journalist, I think, as confessional. And I was like, oh, of course, that's what it is. It's confessional because you talk about your own life and sometimes quite personal things or constructing the idea that there's an intimacy between you and the audience and you're just having a glass of wine and sharing too much information. So that's the, <laughs> that's the word that's very easily gets me out of it now. You're confessional. I'm confessional, comedian. yes. Right. I used to keep a diary like all through my life and I realised that that's what stand-up is, that kind of whatever's happening it kind of shapes and that's what you talk about on stage and so it's always it always changes mm. and the minute kind of if you come out of a relationship you can't do stuff about getting together with that boyfriend anymore or at the moment I've got an eight-month-old poppy 
So all my comedy is about him because I'm so obsessed with him. And he's either at a gig or if I've had to leave him at home, I'm so heartbroken. <laughs> but that's what I talk about. So it's dog comedy now. It's dog comedy, yeah. Um, so your book Sex, Power, Money yeah. is looking at this really interesting balance between evolutionary factors and cultural factors mm. in the way that men and women relate to each other, our behaviour, our attitudes towards sex especially. And one of the most interesting questions, I thought, was the one about who bears social responsibility for a man's desire. So if a man's looking at a woman, what is that transaction? Mm. Yeah, it's a really tricky one, isn't it? Because I think you could kind of talk about it forever and not come up with a definitive answer, which probably makes me a terrible feminist. But the idea that any person wearing a revealing outfit might make another person aroused against their will and then the ramifications of that, if the person who's aroused then feels shame because of the age of the person or the the sex of the person or um, with the cases in Turkey that I talk about there were two attacks on women from men who were very angry and one of them was because it was during Ramadan that she was wearing these shorts and obviously his arousal had made him feel religious shame and for me it's such a, a circular argument because I feel like people shouldn't be ashamed of their sexual reactions especially if those things are just responsive and illogical and non-conscious You want to have a world where we can have compassion for ourselves, all of us, but at the same time that people, especially like young women at school discos or on public transport, don't think they can't wear whatever they want. And then you kind of go, but what age are we telling women? You wear whatever you want, just know. (laughs) Old men might be getting erections about you. Like There's this little phase of childhood that you kind of want to protect Mm. um, while informing. So the whole thing, like... It's really complicated. You tell a story in the book about your ex-boyfriend being in a in a queue. Yes, yeah, with a girl. So she's like thirteen or fourteen, wearing tiny denim shorts, the kind that you know like show a little bit of your bum cheek. And the thing is, for me, so I don't feel I'm straight, so I don't get aroused by the female body very much anyway. So I look at a bum like that or a head in a queue, and it's just as kind of as invisible as everybody else. It's mm-hmm. just shorts, and um, and he was so angry. And again, it was something that kind of years after we've been broken up, I kept thinking about his anger. He thought that her parents shouldn't let her go out dressed like that. And I guess my only experience is having been a teenage girl and um, my mum was very permissive. Like she never would have said, you're not going out dressed like that. But I knew from kind of TV programmes and films that was something that parents said. Yeah. So at the time you were angry with his reaction, but it seems like in the course of kind of um, thinking about the Mm. book and researching it that... I got the sense that your kind of your feelings have shifted a bit on this well, they, subject. It's been a real exercise in empathy for me because I think I considered male arousal as a kind of monster that you couldn't control, and there was something I felt quite resentful about, which was that someone you might not know, and um, especially when I was a younger woman, um, a stranger might just look at you and be aroused, or might think of you a certain way or might make a sleazy comment and so the book really was such an exercise in empathy for me because I kept having to think about but what does it feel like to have that arousal and what messages are men being told and there were some things for me that were like I'm nearly 40 but light bulb moments of I've always hated being approached in a bar like if someone comes over and says can I buy you a drink um I have always thought, well, obviously not. I don't want to talk to you. I'm not here with you. I'm, mm. with, I'm either reading a book or on my phone or by myself or I'm with friends. Why would I want to talk to you? But thinking about that other person, like, oh, why Why do they come over? <laughs> oh, sometimes they might just think we might have a good conversation. We might mean something to each other. It made me so much softer towards them. And also thinking men are told before dating apps, 
go up and offer to buy women a drink. That's how you say it to you're them. you're supposed to do. I'm interested. Mm. And also we have this really kind of outdated idea that men are supposed to provide, whether that is a drink on a first meeting to show, oh, hello, I'm showing my interest, or paying on dates. And God, it made me so much more compassionate to the male side of things. It seems like though that some of this, um, this empathy that you've mm. been kind of digging into in the book, that you've got this also from understanding biology and evolution yeah. a bit more. So it's not just the cultural pressure that men have. Did you find that you kind of changed your mind? I mean, you say yeah. that um, in researching the book, you realised that you had these deep prejudices. Yes. Maybe three or four years ago, if you just said something to me like, oh, what do you think about sex workers? I had um, absolutely a view that um, they should be protected. But speaking to people who get paid hundreds of pounds an hour about their decision made, made a big difference to me because I realised that there are people who have levels of coercion going on with their sex work. But the, the first thing is that our current legal system makes them more vulnerable, everybody. And there's a thing with feminism that you think that decriminalising sex work is to say that it's fine that it happens, and, and it feels like it goes against everything. Like, I just, I don't want any woman to be murdered, I don't want any woman to be beaten up or vulnerable, I don't want any woman to be... But actually you realise that all of the law and all of the stigma makes people's lives so much harder. And the other side of it is that always thinking of things where men are the aggressors and women are always the, I'm going to say it's inverted commas, like victims, mm. and there are lots of men who sell sex and there are female sex buyers... And what's interesting about that, actually, is that it, exactly the same power dynamic. There are, there are women who travel to other countries to pay for sex with um, younger men, usually of a different race. Yeah. What they don't have is a physical ability to dominate, but in every other level it's the same. And it seems like in the book that's the kind of sticking point for you, is that power imbalance. Yes. That seems like it's the problem. I is think that right? I still... I really struggle... Not with the idea of anyone being willing to sell sex or choosing to do it. So that's been a big, like, oh, I've listened to people and I believe them. To people who work in yes, sex Yes, who work, work in yeah. sex work. But um, I, what I can't get on board with still is the people buying it. I, didn't, um, I had some email interviews with um, people who pay for sex. I didn't have any one-on-one -on -one interviews and I just, I just didn't want to make friends with them. I just, I what, why is that? I'm, just, I'm too judgmental. I just, I really judge it. I really judge it. It's not that I think they're all murderers, but they were, the people I interviewed were so, they considered themselves such gentlemen. Like, I treat them well. And, and I'm not saying that they're sexist, I'm not saying that they exist in the rest of their life and they don't think that all women are purchasable. So it's nothing like that. It's just the actual act of what they do. They have sex with somebody who doesn't want to have sex with them. I guess it confronts so much with me and everything. Mm. But what if that woman is consent? saying, I do want to have sex, I'm, I'm yes. happy and this is my job? Yes, So, but here's the difference. If someone wants to have sex and you pay them anyway, I am actually fine with that. Here's the logic that I've come up with. This is since I've finished the book. Mm -hmm. right? Okay, if someone wants to pay for sex, right, fine, you can do it. And if someone wants to, um, and so they can pay someone for sex who's saying that they're selling sex. So let's say it's £80. Okay, give, give them £80, great then they can decide if they want to have sex with you or not. But you have to pay them anyway. You don't find out till afterwards. So there's no problem with it at all. It's just if you don't really want to, you don't have to. Because when, when something's your job, you have to do it. Yes. Yeah. And that's the huge argument is that labour is labour. And some people labour with their bodies. And mm. some people cut hair with their bodies. Or they massage other people with their bodies. And as a species, we can't help it. We've evolved to connect sex with um, the ramifications of offspring. And so we do have these very, very deeply inbuilt prejudices, like sex is something special and 
it's, it's still too much for me. I would really yeah. have to compartmentalise. But but while saying that, I'm admitting that that's my bias. So you're... Well, I guess the, that's the thing about bias is, or any kind of um, opinion or prejudice. Yes. Sometimes it's possible to confront it and change your mind. Yes. But not always. Yeah, or up to a point. or And also, I don't know, I think I can still... I think what I, where I'm happy is that I can really believe in the rights of sex workers and want to be an ally. But I, th- I think I can do all of that while still going, yeah, I don't think I'm ever going to be all right with people paying for sex. It's interesting that, um, that, that what you do in your book is you interrogate that, that feeling that you have that you don't feel like it's OK. And you also go back to kind of looking at some of the evolutionary reasons mm. why you might be responding yes. to that. Yes. Because there's always a reason um, behind this stuff, as, as you point out, and yes. all, all these scientists that you're that you're citing. But those reasons seem so far away from kind of 21st century life often that actually it's yeah. quite difficult, like mm. talking about mate guarding. Mm. So the idea that you don't want, if you're a yes. male, you don't want your female to be impregnated by somebody else. Yes. So you're going to be kind of jealous and domineering and make yeah. sure yeah. that doesn't happen um and so in your book something that i found really interesting is that you say that um you know that was quite a successful strategy for yeah. those those guys because they kind of made sure that their woman wasn't with another man and therefore yes. passed on their jealous domineering genes yes yeah so that, i mean that's it's, quite problematic it's so problematic it's so on pc and it also <laughs> some people would think, well, why are you even talking about those things when they're so negative? We've now mm. decided that they're what we'd call like very antisocial traits. But I think sometimes the problem when we talk about people and human beings and society, if we do it all from the neck up, like it's all conscious, sometimes we misunderstand. And the fact is, it's not excusing anyone because I do believe in decision making mm. and I do believe that we, have, we make conscious choices. But there are certain things that can shape you into being more likely or that might be the influence underlying something. I think it makes more sense than just going like, yeah, Trevor just grew up and started hitting people. (laughs) Um, Sorry, Trevor. Um, (laughs) So it's not just nature. It's not just nurture. Yes. But there seems to be a sense in the book that sometimes we haven't paid enough attention to nature, i.e. the biology. I think it became really unfashionable alongside feminism, actually, because no one wanted to be told that they were something because of their sex. Mm. And I think that's absolutely right, because people were fighting for equality. So it can be sometimes very precarious. Um, And why write a book rather than put all this stuff into a comedy show? Well, comedy is very flippant. It has to be. So people will listen to your routine. If you've got a routine, you want to talk about politics, if you want to talk about Donald Trump, or you want to talk about Brexit. There are things that everyone knows about and they're very happy for you to joke and say your opinion. And then some comics are really, really good at um, kind of putting information into a stand-up show. But either you're lecturing people or you're not very funny or you cut the bits that aren't funny. So that's how it works with stand-up. So this book, if I had written it as a stand-up show... There would be so many areas that I couldn't have talked about because I didn't have flippancy about them. Because they're not that funny. They're not that funny. And to make it funny, you have to be, like, sarcastic and you have to treat it like it's unimportant. Mm. Like, or it does become really hectoring. So they, so they kind of fight against each other. Comedy is so brilliant for lightening the mood, but you pick your moments to relieve tension because some moments like in life and in books should be tense like and you'd just be like and here is the reason that there's domestic violence perhaps still to this very day and it's not supported properly by our government yeah. <laughs> like you don't want to pierce that you just have to say full it's stop not a moment next. for a joke yeah. yeah next paragraph it's funny though because i think lots of your shows have dealt with that how do you 
say what you want to say um, and talk about stuff that isn't necessarily inherently always that funny yes. and be funny. I was yeah. just looking back through some of your kind of early reviews mm. and um, there was a review of a 2014 show that says it's as much a lecture on sexual anthropology as it is comedy set. Yes. And I was like, that's true of lots of what you yes. do and that's quite a fine balance. Mm. So this is where the first book came out from. So it came out from that show and I was talking about Josephine Bonaparte. She she was the woman who saved Sigmund Freud from the Nazis. She'd paid for him to come to London and she was Napoleon's niece and because she was Freudian, she believed, uh, as Freudians did at the time because of Sigmund, that um, the vaginal orgasm was the adult woman's way of orgasming and a clitoral one was um, immature. And um, so obviously he didn't know anything about physiology. He believed that women, and obviously these were all married women because of the times, Mm -hmm. married women who needed clitoral stimulation were stunted in their growth. So uh, Josephine Napoleon, she um, couldn't have the... She was having clitoral orgasms. And um, so she had a clitoris moved, was the first thing. Wow. She had it moved closer to her vagina. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, so it's obviously an incredible yeah. operation and mm. just a huge thing. That's why I didn't open with that. <laughs> she had her vagina moved and then she had it moved back when it didn't work. Wow. But then she had this theory that the clitoral orgasm was nothing to do with psychology. It was much, much more to do with with how close your clitoris was to your vagina. And so she did an experiment under a male pseudonym in France where she measured the distance. And she did find that women who had a clitoris that was over a centimetre away just weren't getting the friction during sex. It's just so basic. It's so (laughs) incredible. It's just like, oh, it's physics. (laughs) Like If if your clitoris is in a certain place where it's going to get rubbed on, then it's involved in the orgasm. There's no such thing as maybe a pure vaginal orgasm. I should just say to listeners that you're rubbing your hands. I'm not rubbing my trousers. (laughs) Thank you for clarifying. Um, so the show was about because obviously that's a, an area which is so it's really interesting and mm. it's ripe for comedy and it's so interesting in terms of female sexuality which is what I wanted to talk about in that show and that's what then became Animal and that's when I stopped doing as much I guess like informative stuff on stage I made a decision of two things that number one I wanted my stand-up to be sillier because I had this serious thing to do when I was at home doing my book writing. So now I've got this nice balance. So that's interesting. You kind of decided that in terms of the sort of content, you could make a, yes. a split almost of book and then yes, comedy very show. Much. And yeah. also it kind of coincided with me having bigger audiences. And I think that's something else that's fed into it is actually you do have to be slightly more accessible. Some people just want to come out and they just want to laugh. They don't necessarily want a lecture on the clitoris. <laughs> But do you ever worry, yeah. though, that the kind of quite mind-blowing stuff mm. that's in this book, mm. that the people who come to your shows are, are missing all of that? Um, or does that not bother you? It's a balance. It's having a little bit of each. Because like, when I'm on stage, and I'm like, that's when I have to be a comedian. But the rest of the time, I'm very serious. Is that true? Yeah. But, so, but do you mm. make jokes with your friends? I mean, no. No, I never have. All my friends are comedians, so there is occasionally funny things will happen. But no. You'd hope they would. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but that's what's not fair. So comedy's your job. You don't have to do it after work. Like, if I was a builder, you wouldn't be like, oh, I, you never guess it's in the back of my cab. Sarah Pascoe, you didn't build anything. You're just like, of course not. I think it's because we yeah. think of it, people who aren't comedians, yeah. as a character trait, and therefore... Yes. You should just yeah. always be funny. Yeah, and also with really good comics, what happens on stage seems so effortless that you can't believe it's constructed, mm. that that's years of practice and work, like walking a tightrope or juggling. It's like, then it's happen. Like, it's 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 all... There's craft in there. Yeah, it's, yeah, that's what's wonderful about watching comics again and again. 
you watch them do a flicker and look like something's just come to them and then they do their topper and it looks like they just thought of it. Mm. There's no one in the audience going like, that was written in a pad and then it was edited <laughs> and then it was crossed out and then that word was inter- interchanged with that one to see if that one worked better and like, yeah, so much boring minute mm. goes into it. You write the, I think it's the introduction of your book, yeah. that um, we have to be careful with language because it creates the world. Yeah. Um, talking about um, representation and diversity and comedy, I mean, in, in this instance, you were actually talking about the word sex work and the word, yes. the word slavery and, yes, and sort of yeah. distinguishing between those two things. But do you think that that kind of carefulness with language, which sometimes gets called woke speak, mm. There's, there seems to be a kind of backlash, a sense that that's bad for comedy, that it's bad for jokes. Well, sometimes it's bad for joke structure. It really is. Um, so comedy is really reductive. Most comedy talks as if everyone's heterosexual and everyone's very similar. Their audience is very similar to the person speaking. And when you put in caveats... OK, I'm going to give an example from my stand-up. And you can get round it, but it's work. So I wanted to say a joke about how men could absolutely understand periods... Men can absolutely understand periods. They can understand the blood and the, and the pain, just like I can understand how much it hurts to be kicked in the balls. So that's essentially what I want to say, right? But then I realise if I say the phrase men about people who don't understand periods and women who I'm assuming all menstruate, then I'm just now all trans people are in this blurry area where they're not men or women. So majority, let's say 99.9% of an audience just listens to the joke. But for that other percentage who you've told, this is not your space, I deny you, I deny your bodily experience. Like, so you have this whole thing. So then you start going, people with female bodies who, and okay, that's not, that's too wordy, okay. Um, and, then you, and, then you, and then people get in trouble because some people hate phrases where you go, people who menstruate. Because mm. then what you end up is 1% of people going, oh, oh, okay. Oh, oh, so do men menstruate? It's like, yeah. Actually, they do. So you've got, you're working all these phrases round. And even things like ladies and gentlemen, and some people don't identify as either of those things. Also, ladies and gentlemen, they're kind of like old-fashioned yeah. terms. Yeah. Most people, just it's background. They don't hear the phrase ladies and gentlemen. But if you know someone who is um, non-binary, um, doesn't identify, and, or you just want to have an inclusive space, you need to have a way of saying welcome everybody <laughs> that doesn't and then you go oh that's it you just say so now i when i'm on stage you go good evening guys thank you so much for coming and no one hears that phrase and goes oh she's decided not to say ladies and gentlemen no but but, but for me for myself i haven't been lazy and gone that's the phrase it doesn't matter if some people aren't either of those things mm. but then it ends up other times where you try you try to get around it but i don't think if you if a comic has said i just don't care that's fine it's like it's not a police state. And for me, it's not like, oh, I'll get an angry tweet. It's it's much more like, oh, I'd really love that person to enjoy my show and not have to think about it. But it seems like you've made a decision as a comedian that you don't want to just offend people for the sake of it when you yes. could be more careful. I just think it's being very careful exactly what you're saying, how it can be construed and can you stand by it? Because it's not about not offending people because offence is actually sometimes very fun. <laughs> as in on both sides, people... Most people who come to a comedy space are not expecting a safe space. They're expecting you to be very rude. If you go on a rant about a group of people, as long as it's not vulnerable people, people find it really funny. So, like, if I was to... I've got very blonde hair. If I was to talk about how much I hated brunettes, that would be really funny, Mm. if if the routine was funny. It would be really funny because it would be so clear. I didn't mean it. They're not an endangered group. No, we're yes. fine. <laughs> yeah. So um, I had a routine in a show once that was about not liking art. And I really thought it was such a perfect thing for me to do because 
art is the strongest thing. Like saying that you find theatre boring or don't like galleries, like and and it was amazing that I offended people with it. And obviously I didn't drop it or anything like that. But I thought this is perfect punching up. Like it's ridiculous to say that you hate all of a like all of a thing, and that you don't like music. It's so ridiculous. But I, I did it on Life of the Apollo, and I had a couple of people going, um, "Who drew the pattern on your dress? An artist." <laughs> that kind of thing when you go the whole thing with comedy actually is that it's exaggeration and hyperbole and and often yeah being quite nasty for the effect of like titillating Mm. people and actually you can't completely take that out of it like you can't just be nice final question Mm. what's the best bit about your job um the best bit about my job i think essentially I've, I've just bought a flat and so and it was so ridiculous like I bought a flat I've been doing comedy for 12 years and it's literally like oh my god like jokes bought me a house <laughs> like imagine that a jokes bought me a house so it just feels like such an immense privilege and I feel very warm and in love with all of it so I love my job Sarah thank you so much thank you so listening to that interview I thought wow this is a person who is extremely open Mm. I really liked that. She sort of laid bare, like, here are my biases. Uh, Here are the things I knew when I didn't. I did research and this is what I learned, you know, and that's earnest. And I think we're just taught that, you know, just say your hot take with authority (laughs) and you will be respected for it. Mm. Uh, But sometimes it's more ambiguous than that. So her ability to say, I didn't know anything about sex work and I spoke to sex workers and now this is how I feel. I just thought that that was sort of an honest journey. I liked it. Yeah, and I think we don't see enough of that, really. The idea of sort of changing your mind in public or admitting you don't know something or you were wrong about something. Mm -hmm. I think politicians could learn (laughs) a lot from her about how to say... (laughs) Times have changed. (laughs) And I knew nothing. (laughs) And now I know more. (laughs) And actually what I like about her is she's saying, for example, about sex workers you know I actually still have biases and I still have prejudices and I'm not totally okay with this subject and I'm going to try and be an ally and I'm going to try and do the work of destigmatizing this but I'm also admitting that I'm not fully on board and I liked that honesty about Mm. her Right, because these topics are, like, so complicated and nuanced, and even if you unpack them all, they're still hard. I mean, I don't know about you, I feel uncomfortable taking a point of view on what's right and what's wrong about sex work and about men who pay for sex, you know? It's a hard one to make a decision on, but it's important. That's it for this week. We'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. You can find us on Twitter at FTCultureCall or you can email us at culturecall at FT.com. If you like what you hear, share this with your friends. Uh, And I know we say this every week, but if you like the show, (laughs) you can also help us out by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners discover the show. We'll be back in two weeks' time. We've been Lila Raptopoulos and Griselda Murray-Brown. Culture Call is produced by David Waters. And our music is composed by Fatum. So that that little bit of improv just threw me. (laughs) Yeah, sorry. Let me do that again.